Ford K9 LLC. Are you looking for a handler school, trainer school, or attend one of our one-week development courses for dogs, handlers, or trainers? Are you in one of the various detection dog scent sports doing nose work or scent work? We have classes and seminars for you as well. We offer trainer classes as well as seminars for many of you handlers. Ford K9 is not just in Vegas, but we can come to you with many of our seminars like K9 Cognition, Detection Using Cognition, The Trust Momentum, and many more. Ford K9 also offers fully trained detection dogs. Contact us. We have access to a variety of breeds of dogs that Cameron custom trains to meet your detection needs. All dogs come with a handler school when you pick up your canine as well. For more information, go visit our website, www.fordcanine.com. Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scent City at the Ford Canine Training Center in Las Vegas, here's your host, Cameron Ford. Hello, and welcome to this next episode of Canines Talking Sense. Today's guests are uh, very experienced in the raising and uh, selecting of puppies to become specialized detection dogs. They work at Auburn University, and they have been uh, even come out, and we I did a cognition class out in uh, Alabama, and I got to meet both in person, and I'm really lucky to have you guys on. I'd like to welcome Dr. Lucia Lazarowski and Bart Rogers from Auburn University. Guys, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank, thank you, you for having us. So for those that may not know what you guys do at Auburn and who you guys are, I'll let you guys kind of just do, you know, talk about, uh, let us know how you got to, what your background is and how you got to Auburn, and then kind of what you do at Auburn University. Sure. So my background's in psychology. Um, I always knew that I wanted to work with animals, but didn't want to be a veterinarian. Um, so I studied animal behavior. I ended up getting a master's in olfactory learning and memory in rats. From there, I was hired as a researcher at North Carolina State University's um, College of Veterinary Medicine, where I was involved in some research on military working dogs, looking at olfaction, cognition, behavior. From there, I decided to get my PhD. That's how I ended up at Auburn. Um, I got my PhD in cognitive and behavioral sciences, studying the development of detection dog puppies. And currently, I am a postdoctoral fellow at um, the Auburn University Canine Performance Sciences Program. Awesome. No, that's, I mean, you have a lot of tie over for my experience with, uh, obviously, you know, Brian Hare and uh, with the Duke uh, University Canine Cognition stuff. So we'll get into some of those questions uh, coming up here. So it's awesome. I can have somebody I can, you know, uh, go back and forth with some of the cognitive things that go on and detection dogs. But uh, Bart, go ahead with with yours. So I, I started working with um, dogs back about 10 years ago at Auburn University when it was, I worked for veterinary sports medicine. And we were doing a lot of stuff with greyhounds and pointers and things like that. And we, uh, at the same time, we, we took over Canine Detection Research Institute, which was um, stationed, it was Auburn University's Canine Detection Research, Research Institute stationed at uh, Fort McClellan in Anniston, Alabama. And that over the years kind of morphed into um, now being Canine Performance Sciences and the breeding and development and training 
um, is now at Auburn, and um, I oversee the training development um, of dogs and selection of dogs um, up to a year old. Um, at that point in time, they're either put in the field for work or they become research dogs or they're slotted, slotted for breeding individuals. Okay. And um, I guess I'll start off with, you know, many people know of Auburn for a lot of the canine research. And specifically, I know a majority of that focus has been on detection. So like yesterday or in a previous interview I just did uh, with individuals from PennVet, Dr. Cindy Otto and Robert Doherty, uh, they also do a lot of dual purpose dogs and search and rescue dogs as well. So you guys, am I correct in stating that you guys spend most of the work focused, focusing on detection? Yes, single purpose detection. Okay. And this is the birthplace for those that have heard the term vapor wake and things like that. Auburn was the originator, and I believe the ones that initially started the whole trademark of vapor wake, correct? Yes. Okay. So for those that don't know, because we have a vast audience, what, what is VaporWake and what makes it unique? So VaporWake is a dog that is able to screen um, people in mass transit environments and work odor to source. Um, the difference between a VaporWake dog and a traditional EDD dog, or say just a passenger screening dog, would be that a VaporWake dog utilizes the air currents and how that odor interacts with your odor plume. Um, and the dogs don't target and search people like they would a static target in a traditional explosive detection dog scenario. They target the air. And when they hit odor, they work the odor until a point that they are aware of the target. So the dog doesn't come sniff you and then respond. The dog is working the air. Mm -hmm. So the beauty of that is in a scenario the dog could detect a person in a real-world scenario because me and you both know in a real-world scenario, we're not going to wait for a final response. Correct. Party of the time. The dog would give the handler enough information. The handler could identify the target without the target ever knowing and maybe give you the ability to isolate that person and deal with a threat. Yeah, and that's a significant, what we call a tactical advantage because – uh, just like you said, to be able to have that dog, that sensor, work that environment, kind of blend in, uh, the handler interpret what the dog is telling them, potentially isolate or identify individual or individuals or a small group, you can almost you know, push that you know, uh, person or persons to an area where they can get further screening and not even know they were detected by the dog, per se. Or just confront them in an area, you know, where there's less likelihood of collateral damage. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, you know, being in the environment that I'm at in Las Vegas, obviously it's a huge pedestrian environment. Uh, there is two Vaporwake dogs out here that work the convention center. Uh, I assist with uh, some of the uh, other casinos here that are uh, will be looking to and in, in changing uh, and adding a more – Vaporwake style, or we you know whatever the term ends up being these days. Is, uh, as we all know, there's what is it? Was it passenger screening canines, uh, mobile air detection dogs? There's a, a number of different things that kind of mean the same thing. But <laughs> so uh, yeah, odor pursuits, another one. So yeah, there's a lot of the uh, uh, the terms out there that all kind of go in the same thing. But it, it's a newer need that we didn't obviously. Uh, really address until 9-11, and then it's just kind of, kind of to me, 
refined itself over the years uh, to to go there. So this kind of brings up something I wouldn't typically I was going to ask probably later on, but since we're on that subject, uh, one of the unique things that because of a dog like this that's out there is how do we evaluate a team? And there isn't a whole lot of uh, certification standards that uh, cover that mass pedestrian screening type of work. Uh, what do you guys have or what can you guys kind of mention? Like what, how do you grade somebody who works a dog like this uh, as opposed to the traditional certifications that are out there for your traditional explosive detection dog? Well, um, how this usually works is as we sell our dogs to another company that licenses the name yeah. and how, how they evaluate those dogs um, is, is how they do it. I, I do not evaluate the teams in the field. I'm, gotcha. okay. I, I'm more geared to foundational preparedness of gotcha. that dog from genetics and development and training. Gotcha. And we, we do evaluate the puppies from a very early age over the course of the year. Um, but again, we're focused on the dog characteristics. And at that point, the dogs are just in training and they aren't actually placed at the handler until after they leave Auburn. And, and actually our, so our kind of standard that we aim for is Vapor Wake. But actually what we're really striving for is what we call the ultimate detection dog that can do any type of detection task. So that might be Vapor Wake. It might be something different. Okay, perfect. So then that leads to my my first question I wanted to go with is, so you guys have a breeding program there or part of, or and you guys procure dogs also. Is it all of your guys breeding or do you guys also procure puppies from different breeders? We have our own breeding program. So actually a kind of misconception about our program is we are first and foremost a research program. So everything that we do is to conduct research to advanced detection technology. So part of that research program is that we have our in-house breeding that allows us to conduct research on how to better select dogs, how to breed dogs, everything from the medical theriogenology aspects to the behavior and the raising. Um, and so that's really what our focus is, is advancing the, the knowledge of that. And then obviously the byproduct of our research is that we have dogs that are then sellable, good quality working dogs. But we, but we do um, purchase outside puppies occasionally, um, and we also do evaluate and select outside breeding individuals, um, which is up till now have always been studs. We're we're trying to work some ways that we you know we could we could lease or do something with some breeding females that are quality, mm -hmm. um, because that's the hardest part of the game is the female in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. Um, so yes, we 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 do go outside. And I, I mean, to me, I think that's also a good plus because it creates some diversity in genetics too, um, to really help you know either enhance or uh, potentially avoid you know issues. So enhance certain skills and avoid or by that, that diversity help you know prevent uh, genetic qualities that may be undesired. Since you since you guys had the puppies, so the first thing, so tell us about your steps so when we were off air a second ago we we're kind of talking about uh ages so go ahead from your guys if you don't mind describe your stages from i'll say lack of a better term from birth through when eventually we get to a, a dog who begins that formalized professional training yeah so um when the dog is is born um it's with its mother for three days before we start doing any development with it at day three, we start and we do we emphasize um, tactile stimulation with the dog. Um, 
where we, you know, we hold it, we, we touch it with different materials. And then once a dog gets, and that kind of progresses with um, more handling different materials and each week of our development changes. Okay. So development in that first early development process, which is zero to seven weeks, um, is emphasis is habituation to novelty. So we change every week and then at week three to four, when the, the dogs are becoming sensory aware, we start moving into some more auditory and visual stimulus with the same emphasis on habituation and novelty. Um, and during that, you know, we have stimulation rooms where we expose the dogs to different scenarios, different looks of things. The room changes all the time um, from visual, auditory, tactile uh, obstacles and things like that. And we emphasize passive exposure first and then mild stress and individualized structure exposures through checklists and then bring the dog back once that mild stress has happened to the mother and the litter mates. Mm. And that's the, that's the first step um, at zero to seven weeks. At seven weeks, 49 days, they head to the kennel. And um, in their early development, they've been conditioned and exposed to crates. Time spent isolated in a crate up to two minutes um, alone, um, mock trailer rides. So then they go on a truck and trailer to the kennel. We try to minimize the stress of that in the early development. And this is what we call the intermediate development phase, which is that day 49 up to six months, week 26. So they're in the kennel and we are emphasizing um, environmental soundness. We just continue that emphasis on habituations novelty, but also balancing it out while with their performance characteristics. So we're bringing out that natural prey drive, the hunt, mm -hmm. the reward value, um, how to efficiently work, um, all those characteristics, but it's a fine balance. So we, I would say we're somewhere between 70, 30, 60, 40, environmental soundness, mm -hmm. 60% disengaged from work and then engaged in work because as you probably know, the work's gonna come through genetics. Sure. We develop it, but if it's not there genetically, it's not going to be there. So we continue that process up to six months, and then at the six month period, they go into a prison program, which I oversee, where inmates start with the dogs um, on odor discrimination, they actually put them on a novel odor. Um, they start structured discrimination work, imprinting, um, and at 10 months, they come back to Auburn. And at 10 months, I get the dogs back. They're environmentally sound for the most part. They have an understanding foundation of discrimination. We've maximized their performance characteristics. I put them on their first explosive odor. And um, we determine through evaluation process whether they're breeders, they're research quality dogs, or they're going to deploy in the field. And one thing I didn't mention is at, five, at three months, we evaluate the dogs. And at five months, we evaluate the dogs. And then at 10 months, we evaluate the dogs. And then post 16 days of training or a month's worth of training, we, we reassess the dogs and pick breeders. And then the breeders go back to the prison and we wait a few months and bring them back and see if they still look the same. Gotcha. So with the odor detection part so at six months old when you guys start introducing are you guys using um like cindy Otto was talking about there's that neutral odor that dr ken furton has come up with 
Are you guys using something similar to that or that exact same thing? Is that what you guys are using for that uh, odor development part? I wouldn't say similar or the same thing, but it's 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 a proprietary thing that we use right now. Okay. Um, it's the same concept. Same so concept. It's, a, it's a chemical odor that they're not going to encounter yep. in their everyday environment. So it just allows us to teach the foundational odor on something that then can be changed out for yep. whatever the target. So yeah, same, same concept as there's the UDC. Yeah. So, cause that's, you know, obviously, so those that are out there that want to, you know, the, in, in this period of time that we're going through right now with the COVID-19 virus and things like that, it's obviously brought a point forward that we do need in the United States to be more self-sufficient on producing dogs that we need. Because uh, I know many vendors right now that can't even bring any dogs in until maybe June. So it's, you know, I don't make the analogy, but dogs are like toilet paper at the moment, you know, depending on where you're at in the United States. There's there's vendors that have no dogs on the shelves anymore because everybody knows they can't get at dogs for however many months. So, however, if we are better prepared and have more dogs available to us, um, you know, we can uh, keep fulfilling needs even in times that are more difficult. And so a breeder comes along and, you know, and there's many good genetic uh, uh, resources out here for us with dogs. Um, but what we lack is a process. We have great people like yourselves and others out there that have a very good understanding of what we need to do. Uh, we have good genetics that are out there. But as a whole, where we, uh, where we struggle quite a bit is having that uh, process in place. And what I'm loving is how you guys are describing that process there. But the number one thing that comes up in that process is, well, what odor do I use? Because once I commit, I know I'm committed. And uh, I don't know if, uh, as a breeder or vendor, will I have enough uh, individuals that want a bomb dog or want a drug dog? So what what uh, Dr. Cindiato and what you guys brought up is there's a way to do, for lack of a better term, I'll call search games or search puzzles that help dogs learn those key skills in searching and detection and, like you said, indication, what to do when I find it, uh, that can be done and create a great foundation. And then that transfers later on to the actual target materials that they'll do professionally. Is that a pretty good assessment of overall? And yeah, can do a lot of that foundational odor work with just the dog's reward. So we do, we start yeah. with, you know, training the hunt and all that much earlier than six months we just use the dog's reward and then at yep. six months we switch it out for an odor but a lot can be done even just using the reward so what would you guys so so for example i mean i know what i do and and we're on the same page but for the listeners if you want to use uh, you know food or toy or whatever you use do you guys typically use food more often do you guys use a toy object and, and then at what stage are you introducing that concept to the dog or puppy it's reward we okay. we all we only use the ball. Um, so uh, we, we don't use food ever. Mm -hmm. um, now we're about to start some things, hopefully in the future, where we, we do some early imprinting, mm -hmm. and data collection on that, where we would we would have to use food. Because, I mean, it's a puppy. You can only get so many trials sure. with the ball. So yeah. I'm, I'm not opposed to that. But typically, um, I, want, I want the dog that wants the ball. Yep. I think that there's, there's a time and a place where food reward works just fine at the end of the day the reward should be what that dog what is rewarding to that dog mm -hmm. the type of dogs that we are selecting for are dogs that innately have that desire for 
balls and things that move. And so that's what their, you know, their propensity is going to be for that type of reward. So that's going to work better for them. Um, but that's not to say that in some situations, food reward wouldn't also work. We just, we just don't use it. Most of our dogs wouldn't eat if they had a ball in their mouth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah sure. No. And, and, and you know, you, you guys bring up uh, points and I do the same thing. So I have a hybrid version. I use a lot of food in teaching and then I end a session with that dog's high value item, toy ball, whatever that item actually is. So, uh, you know, I have the food to kind of, you know, sometimes, uh, help in, in motivation control, <laughs> drive control a little bit. Um, but at the same time it's, it helps in teaching cause it, you know, as we will get more in the cognition part coming up, it helps in that cognitive ability to be more mentally flexible. And then of course I end that rep or that session or what have you with that, what I know is going to be that high value reward item uh, for that dog in its professional uh, sense later on when it's finished. And then, of course, it's just used, you know, it becomes it's it's uh, what I use as it's uh, high value reward professionally all the time. They don't need the food anymore at that point. It's just uh, in that teaching stage with a young dog, as we brought up, is it helps sometimes having that flexibility to go from food to this to the high value reward and uh, it accomplishes the goal of that training objective. Yeah, and it depends on, like you just said, the objective too. So for some behaviors that are, you want really fine-tuned behaviors that are really complex. So for example, we do a lot of research where we train the dogs to lay still in an MRI scanner for a long mm -hmm. period of time. We have to use food for that because you don't want the dog every minute to jump out of the machine and run around. So we can use food to get lots of repetitions and, and reinforce those very kind of small-tuned behaviors and then jackpot after a period of time yep. with all. Yeah. No, exactly. Very the exact same concept. So when you guys do those games with the toy and what have you, uh, what age is that pup typically at when you've started these, like I said, hunting games, search puzzles, whatever you want to call it? So when, with, the, with the reward value, we start um, six, seven weeks um, with throwing the ball, letting the ball grab it, tugging, playing um, with whatever it may be, soft tug toys, uh, small tennis balls type things like that. Um, but around week nine, eight, nine. So when they go to the kennel mm -hmm. out of the, we start immediately with going to field type areas where we, we do short tosses for the ball and the dog retrieves it. And then when the dog feels confident in retrieving it and interacting with the handler and building that possession, then it may go slightly out of sight and we know the winds in our favor. So then that'll bring the dog out with odor to find the ball. Um, and the litters vary with their object permanent. Some of them, when the ball disappears, they have no idea to use their nose. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it takes a little bit longer. But typically, we start that process trying to do it about eight weeks old. And um, by 12 weeks old, we're, they do an evaluation where the balls are hidden in mm -hmm. an environment. They have building, and they are running around searching, air sending, locating odor, and working the source and retrieving the ball. Yeah, and that's uh, – and that's... A critical skill set, I mean, you know, I've heard the different arguments, okay, or, or all dogs are born to search and this, that, and the other, but I've always felt it's important just to enhance that skill and to create that, you know, now that I know what I know about cognition, having that dog understanding context and how to best use its skill and default to nose over or quicker than other ways it made an inference to solve a problem. So, go ahead. And one thing at, at Auburn... Um, it always kind of blows people's mind when we show them this. We'll take a puppy or even an adult dog, and we can be in a parking lot, 
and put their reward. No, we don't let the dog see us put the reward, but the ball can be sitting plain visual sight mm-hmm. in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. And the dog will not grab it until it works odor all the way to source. It does not exist except for the odor to work to source. Yep. And, and that shows that clear communication. And, of course, in this industry, I've been known more because I've talked about the use of markers and bridges for a while now. And it kind of you know was new years ago in the detection dog world. As we all know, it's nothing new in, in most training aspects. But for the detection market, it was always like, no, you got to convince a dog you do not have a toy on you. And, you know, all the other stuff. And they always played those games. Um, I, I, I know you guys, we all, you know, on the academic side, we're like, why would you work so much harder? And you know your dog knows this answer. Why are you trying to keep trying to fool it? Um, but talk a little bit about in that stage how important it is for the dog to understand that communication system and the, and the power of uh, markers and bridges and what is done in this type of training. So, um, I, we really don't get into the marker training much until they're about six months old. Sure. The rest sure. Of yeah. it is, you know, it's just building confidence, but at six months old, when they go to the prison we start putting a final response on the dog, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, the sit passive response yep. is they'll start using verbal or clicker. I, I actually right now kind of got two of the prisons doing verbal and two mm-hmm. of our prisons doing clicker and just kind of getting feedback from them. Um, but I can tell you the ones that have the clicker, um, they're having better results and they are, um, they are have the dogs have a cleaner response and how we utilize it is first is I don't do any loading the clicker with mm-hmm. food. Mm-hmm. Um, our dog's hunt is so high. We'll use the reward, yep. the unconditional stimulus, the ball. Yep. We'll pair it with odor in a box. And when a dog has a change of behavior, we'll mark and pay through the box. Yep. And with our dogs, you know, people talk about loading clickers. It's sometimes two or three trials. And that, yeah, it takes you, no time at all. That click, that dog is, he knows the reward's coming. And at that point, we'll put the sit response on them. Mm-hmm. They knew sit away from the boxes, sit, mark with a clicker, mm-hmm. pay reward, and then they come to the box this next time. We know we've got the marker down, the marker's loaded, the clicker's loaded, and odor, they understand the odor, we'll say sit, the dog sits, he gets he gets paid. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we start discrimination. But um, I can tell you this, it, I, I started you know, working with detection dogs 10 years ago, and it wasn't until the last four years probably about four years ago that I, I had to train some um, PTSD service dogs mm-hmm. and I had to use a clicker. I'd never used it before uh-huh. with a little push from Lucia here. <laughs> um, Why don't you use that imprint dog? Oh, yeah. I'm not having a clicker. Anyway. Hey, well, yep. I use the litter. I have not went back and I I'll know. tell you what, I have gained a few pounds since I got the clicker, because I work a lot less. <laughs> it, it, I mean, it is so much more efficient using a marker bridge system, and because, and it's funny, you know, and I say this almost on all these episodes I talk about, uh, you know, just like you're bringing up, you know, when I first got into it, you know, the dog had to be convinced it was, you know, the toys popping from source, so which meant as a handler, you have to, and most times, be behind the dog to launch that toy. So that way they don't see you throw it. So right there in itself is that limitation of your position where you have to be. But that position itself is the mark. It's just a physical one the dog then uses to know this is going to happen next. So I always tell the individuals when we're doing this training, I said, okay, whether you say you use a marker or not, you are because you, you, you are doing something in a ritualistic way or a habitualistic way 
that the dog has already used to know this is going to happen next. So whether it be the Velcro from your pocket or where you're standing, and I always tell them, I, I said, I always prefer a audible-type marker because it's more reliable than my body position because, you know, I'm reacting off the dog where, you know, with the audible, I have the, I have the ability to be in any position I want. So I make my joke is, okay, those that you, you know, you got to throw the toy into the dog, I want you to stand facing your dog and, and do what you need to do to reward your dog. Well, I can't. He's going to see me throw the ball. Okay, well, that shows your limitation that you have. You know, can some dogs do it? Oh, absolutely. There's plenty of dogs that can sit there and have a fantastic indication and hold their position no matter where their handler's at. But we all know we're trying to do training that's most efficient for all of us as detection dog handlers and using a methodology that is the most, that is, has a better or higher rate of efficiency, uh, especially as you brought up, the time is reduced because the dog understands the sequence so much better. They're not trying to use us for information as much. Where before, when we're playing those games, it's constantly they're searching, but they're also watching us. So they're becoming, the dog itself is becoming less efficient because they're wasting part of their time trying to guess when you're going to do your thing that tells them reward's coming. Yeah, and that's really the beauty of the clicker is that it's a clear signal that eliminates all these other variables that you're going to have to work to eliminate later on. So all these superstitious behaviors that the dog thinks is a signal that because it was a signal, like you said, the Velcro pocket, your position, you're eliminating all of that and you're just getting right to the point of what you want the dog to learn. Absolutely. So this goes into, I'm going to you know, steer this towards cognition now. Um, talk about a little bit your um, experience in your journey on the cognitive side of dogs and dog training and, and, and kind of go into the, what you've taken from the cognition and how you apply it to detection dogs. Sure. So um, you mentioned Brian Hare earlier. I actually, when I was in college, that's when I sort of first discovered the um, research on cognition and dogs that Brian Hare was doing. And that's where I got really interested in doing that. And then when I worked at NC State, I actually um, was working on the project studying military working dog behavior um, at the same time that Duke was also funded by the same project to look at cognition and dogs. So I got to really interact with Brian and Evan and learn about the cognitive side of detection dogs. Um, so at Auburn, I was interested in looking at how cognition develops in puppies and what kind of the um, the trajectory is of that development. So puppies are just like children. Cognition develops at certain ages, sort of in stages, things like memory and problem solving. They, they develop over time as, as your brain develops. And so I was interested in how those things develop in puppies, at what ages they start to develop these different cognitive abilities and do dogs, do the differences between different dogs' cognitive abilities and the ages that they develop, is that predictive of that dog's eventual performance as a detection dog? Um, So we we use the same tests that that Duke developed for testing cognition in dogs and testing puppies at different ages. At the same age as actually that we're performing their detection dog kind of standard evaluations um, to be able to look at kind of how that cognition progresses over time, how it maps onto their performance in their evaluations, and then how it, it kind of predicts their eventual outcome. And so we have, um, we've seen a lot that, you know, cognition plays a role, obviously, in a lot of the things that detection dogs do. They have to remember odors, remember spatial locations, they have to navigate complex spatial environments, they have to have self-control. So 
pretty much every aspect of what detection dogs do involves some kind of cognitive mechanism. And so we have adapted some of those measures to try to understand what what a dog, how a dog performs, how it solves a problem, and how that relates to that dog's um, performance. And really the the thing that's useful about the cognitive measures is that it just provides another kind of window into another layer of the dog's behavior. So while there's definitely usefulness in these more traditional kind of temperament-based tests, there's also you know complementary measures that cognition can bring that where it interacts with the standard kind of behavioral type of measures. Um, so we look at things like how dogs solve problems, um, how you know how they persist. It's not that always do they get the problem right or wrong. It's mm-hmm. how do they try to solve it? Do they yep. they persist or perseverate on the wrong solution over and over again? Are they flexible? Are they adaptive to trying a different solution? Are they good at so there's on the other hand there's social cognition, how they communicate and cooperate with a person that's really important. Um, are they flexible in their strategies? Um, and it also allows a more objective and quantifiable measure of the dog's behavior. Canines Talking Sense webinars. You have heard from many of our guests. Well, now many of them are offering numerous webinars through our webinar platform on the Ford Canine website. All webinars can be purchased for $25 each, or you can join the Ford Canine Club channel and get two webinars a month for $25. Ford Canine Club Channel always has one new webinar as well as one of the episodes from the past so you can enjoy again. Go to www.fordcanine.com slash webinar. Joe Nick Canine Training, LLC. Sniff it out. Are you looking for a scent or nose work detection seminar? Joe Nick Canine Training, LLC will be hosting a canine scent work and Nose Work Detection Seminar, June 14th at 688 Westwood Avenue, Rivervale, New Jersey. If you're getting ready for an upcoming AKC trial or an odor recognition test, or perhaps just getting started in nose work and scent work, this seminar workshop is just for you. Just filled with lots of education, hands-on scenario-based applications for you and your dog to succeed and get better at the sport. For more information, go visit them on Facebook at Joe Nick Canine Training. That's J-O-E-N-I-C-K Canine Training. And they will help you get signed up or you'll see all the information they have uh, about their events and training. With that said, as we kind of come back to normal uh, and start having events again, start having seminars again, please feel free to contact me at Info, I-N-F-O, at Ford K9, F-O-R-D, K9.com. And let me know. I will host your uh, information on my website, my social media platforms, and, of course, here on K9's Talking Sense. I am just charging $75 to do that. So if you have an event coming up, you have a trial coming up, and you want to get some information out there to everybody to know that you're doing this, email me. We'll get it set up. I'll put you on my website. I'll put you on the podcast. I will also get the information out on all my social media feeds. So that way we can all start getting back together and having fun working our dogs. Yeah, completely. So I'm going to, this is the first time I've ever got to talk to somebody outside of my normal Duke circle. So (laughs) I want to throw some stuff at you that I've seen 
myself, and you got to watch me do some of the stuff with Tim when I was up there in Alabama. And, you know, what I'm doing is what I've seen from what I learned from Brian and what I've applied as a um, practitioner. So I took a lot of the tests and kind of narrowed it down, and I hone in on memory and inference. And what I kind of was, you know, curious from your point of view, um, what have you seen? So I'll start off with this. So I prefer dogs that lean towards the stronger side or they're quicker to use inference one way, whatever it is, I whatever the, so, uh, the problem is, um, versus a dog on memory. So dogs that are strong in memory, would I've, and I, even if I still like the dog, I just know I need to change context much faster as a trainer. So I only do, and I'm just giving an example. Let's just say I'm doing my intro cycle of odor. I may only do it in boxes for two days, and then I'm going to the pipes for two days, and I'm going to a different. So by changing that context, I've seen them learn faster because they're not going, oh, it's boxes. Oh, it's pipes. You know, I'm letting them know the only context that's really valuable is the odor because what I had seen as a practitioner was they just used the visual memory knowing these are boxes. This is the only time I search. But when I keep presenting a different containment system, even though that containment system the method being like a lineup or a row or a circle or whatever has in that beginning stage, uh, the, the containment changes, but the principles are the same. But just changing that outer container made a big difference because they weren't able to use uh, to directly go off visual memory first. It required them to start using their nose faster. Is that right? Correct? Yeah, exactly. So, so while memory obviously is, it's an important cognitive mechanism. It's related to, you know, all kinds of cognitive abilities and intelligence. It can also work against you. So if you at any point make a small error, the dog is going to remember that. Or if you unintentionally use the same, you know, landmark or hiding location, if that becomes, in fact, if the dog commits that to memory, then they might default to using that. So something that we look at is kind of pitting different cues and conflict with each other. So purposely putting visual landmarks mm -hmm. and then putting an odor cue that is, you know, conflicts with that landmark and see, does the dog default to following the visual landmark or the odor? And we, we obviously are looking for the dog that ignore even having you know, a person pointing at a container that's empty and then a different container that has odor. Does the dog follow the human pointing that's wrong in that scenario or follow its nose? Yeah, that's exactly what, so when I'm doing the general testing, just like, I, I started off, it's more of a visual aspect versus the nose on the one I do. I do exactly what you described. So I, I show the dog, hey, I'm putting your reward item, food or toy, over here under this bucket. I'm going to point to this other bucket that has nothing in it. Which one do you choose? Do you choose where I point or do you choose where you last saw something? And that's just, that's before the dog knows any odor. I'm just looking to see, will it go against what I'm telling it by, nat by its natural ability to go where it wants to go? Uh, because I just use that as a predictive marker in the sense of, okay, this dog's willing to go where it knows it wants something versus me telling it uh, or using my, my gestural communication as a way to solve the problem, even though it knows my gesture is wrong. So that's just one of the inference tests that I do uh, that, that comes from that whole Brian uh, hair aspect of, of that cognitive stuff. But I, I do that, like I said, because it's just part one. Part two is that I just do marker cue, which you saw, where I just put an object over that item that has their reward the item there and see that they use that that and that's a pretty easy one the hardest one is the causality one where 
I cover, you know, one is the, the towel is on the ground. The other one is the towel is covering the bucket. So it's slowly like one is I'm pointing. The next one is a, using a visual reference. The last one is there's now I'm covering what they've been looking at. And can they still make the inference that this is different than the other one? And they still go with their with the uh, making decision or the ones I like to see is they choose, let's say, the one that's not covered. They just go to the flat towel on the ground. And then they realize after, let's say, the second or third rep, they try something different and they realize, oh, OK, and then they get it 100 percent after that. That shows me that they can make the inference and then their memory tells them start using this. Yeah, and that's how, you know, it's not always about how many they got right from the get-go or yep. what their first response was, but can they quickly learn, you know, to shift strategies or can they can they learn what they're supposed to do um, during the course of that? And something that, that we put a lot of emphasis on is the concept of arousal. So a lot of our yes. cognitive, um, you know, cognitive tests involve a problem that is purposely really difficult and that the puppies at certain ages may not be developed enough to be able to solve independently, but we're looking at how frustrated do they get and how kind of worked up and over aroused do they get, or are they able to stay calm, cool, and collected? Because the more kind of, whether it's frustration or even excitability for trying to get their toy, that over arousal is going to cloud their ability to think clearly and problem solve. And so we look for the dogs that we want a middle ground. Obviously some, some nervous energy is good. It's like if you're taking an exam if you are sleepy and bored you're not going to perform well mm -hmm. but if you are way too nervous and you drank too much coffee you're not going to do well either you need to have a little bit to motivate you to perform well but not so much that it tips you over the top and and that's where we are kind of trying to encourage a shift in the community where people tend to go for those really over the top crazy <laughs> dogs that you think are what you want because they've got they got the ball dry, they have the motivation, but those are the dogs that are going to, they're gonna burn out, they're not gonna have endurance. You don't want that kind of dog in your house. Um, we want the dogs that can turn that on and off. They need that in some context, but they can manage it and allocate their energy and be able to solve problems without getting too excited or too frustrated, too worked up. Yeah, and that that's a problem with what we call the five minute Ferrari uh, evaluation dog. Uh -huh. It's a disconnect between the evaluators, the trainers, and then what that dog's going to be like in the field. Yep. No, you you guys basically hit the nail on the head. It's one of the main things that I, I talk about um, that I've had to do with a lot of the law enforcement agencies. And, and I was brought up in a day and the age where we wanted that dog that was insane for that toy. No matter what we did with that toy, they will do whatever to get to it. It wasn't until I started doing this, you know, learning cognition with Brian that it showed me the importance of that mental flexibility and that we were we were we had a significant flaw in our evaluation of dogs because we never looked at the mental flexibility or the intelligence of the dog. We looked at environmental, we looked at motivation, and, and we always thought the more motivation, the better it's gonna be. But yet as trainers, we also many times hated that dog that was so motivated for, for its toy or whatever that it became almost difficult to train and teach because just like you brought up, that motivation overrides, that stimulation overrides the dog's ability to problem solve and think clearly. So then as a trainer and handler, you're beating your head against the wall and then you're using compulsive methods and force to try to make it happen, which then in itself causes stressors that now the dog either struggles to work or tries to fight through because you've picked it because it fought through everything to get that that reward item, and then you you've created that vicious circle. 
And what I learned after doing this is exactly what you guys just described, which is a dog who's motivated, but yet can, when presented with a conflict, go, okay, hold on a second. Let me figure this out. And a lot yeah, of those are unicorn dogs. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, and a lot of the trainers sometimes hate those dogs because when we go back to the cognitive side of things, they are already one step of you if you aren't changing your context enough. Or if you're too predictive in your things, then they're like, well, this dog's too smart for me because it's already doing And then they struggle to train that. So, you know, it's you know, like you said, the unicorn dogs. And, and I have um, spent this past, let's say, 18 months. I've raised now three dogs from puppies, three different breeds. Uh, two came from one breeder and they're two different breeds. So I've done a Malinois, Labrador and a Pointer now. And in that 18 months, I've done exactly what we're talking about. I've looked for the dogs that were mentally flexible, still highly motivated, but could be able to problem solve. Now, this leads back to that puppy aspect of cognition where, so obviously I learned it with Brian was older dogs first. And then you've got to know, I'm sure Dr. Emily Bray or Cohen, I believe now since she's married, uh, were you guys in school together? Did you guys come across paths together? Yeah, yeah, I know of her very well. A lot of the uh, kind of puppy development stuff that we've done is based on some of the research that she's done on yep. maternal behavior with moms and puppies. Yeah, so what I'm starting to do now is, and I held off because, as you know, uh, Evan and Emily have been doing a research project. And I think it's finally done or going to be published here real soon or what have you. Um, maybe you guys have even seen it. But um, that's what I'm. the next step I'm trying to share and push out to people is and that's what I want you to talk about is what have you seen at certain ages of puppies that have been pretty reliable as far as it predicting uh, whether it's stronger memory or stronger inference is there is there a test or a couple tests or things that you've seen and what age have you seen kind of be okay what I see here at X amount of weeks seems to match again at X amount of months yeah so. So I'll say that with our population, our 90% of our issues for why dogs don't make it is for environmental soundness reasons. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to use those tests to just predict outcome um, because most of our dogs, just the performance characteristics are there. The reason they wash out is for environmental soundness. Um, but when it comes to finer tuned selection of the dogs that we want to breed or you know particular kinds of roles, we do see that in the puppies, um, kind of their, their their motivation for the reward is obviously going to facilitate how they perform on the task. And so the puppies that lack that motivation, they're just going to, they're going to give up more easily on, on a problem-solving task, whereas the puppies that have that high motivation, they're going to be, you know, they're going to perform better on the task. And we do see that there's kind of an age curve with that. The puppies are still young and so they haven't really learned yet how to how to manage that overexcitement and arousal so we sometimes see that the the young puppies that perform by what the standard is worse on the problem solving task are actually the puppies that are going to grow up to to be better because they had that they had that motivation early on they just you know needed to mature a little bit so it's a little bit tricky to apply that with the puppies but we definitely do see differences in their their ability to persist in trying to solve a problem versus giving up easily or getting frustrated. Um, we also see that on the social cognition side, so um, one of the tasks that we do is we with the unsolvable task, we put a reward in a trap container and we look at how long the dog persists on, they can't get it out, but how long do they persist trying? 
And what kind of surprised us is it, it wasn't the dogs that persisted longer to get the reward. It was the dogs that eventually figured out, okay, I'm not going to get this thing open. I'm going to stop and I'm going to look at my handler and make eye contact, which is kind of an indication that they realize persisting and persisting isn't going to work. I need to try something different. And that seems to correlate with the dog's trainability scores and their social engagement. So whereas we definitely select dogs that have their independent workers and they're not handler dependent, you have to have a little bit of that cooperation to be trainable. And so it's been, it's not necessarily one test that's going to tell us, you know, a yes or no answer. It's a combination of how they perform on different tasks. Um, another one that we do is a, it's a barrier test. So there's, there's a fence and the puppy has to learn to go around one side to get a reward. And then we shift it to the opposite side. And now it has to learn that side no longer works. It has to go the other direction. And that's something that has shown um, pretty early on the puppies that, just get way too frustrated, um, over aroused, and they just lay down and start whining versus the dogs that keep keep persisting and trying different solutions until they figure out you know, the solution that works. And that's something that you can actually start to develop early on. So even with very young puppies, you can set up these different obstacles or barrier challenges where you put either their food bowl or a toy on the other side of an obstacle and they have to learn on their own how to how to work around it, how to solve that problem on their own. And what age do you are you doing unsolvable? So for the research that we did, we did it at the same ages as our evaluation. So three, five, 10, and 12 months. Um, but we haven't looked at doing it earlier, but that's something definitely to look into is whether these things kind of show up even earlier than three months. And at three months, did you, a dog, let's say, who did well at three months, did they continue to do well throughout the cycle? And it are, also, did you see dogs improve that maybe not did not do so well at three months, but were much better at nine months? So for the unsolvable task, it was, again, kind of an age-dependent thing where the performance on the test that was correlated with a good-performing dog was different depending on the age. So the, the gazing at the handler, that communication behavior, didn't really show up until the dogs were over six months old. That seems to be something that they don't really learn to do until later. Whereas the three month old puppies on the insolvable task, it was the ones that persisted longer versus the ones that gave up earlier were the ones that were going to be more likely to succeed. And it, it is those same dogs, the dogs that at a younger age have the higher motivation, the persistence and those problem solving skills are gonna be the ones that at a later age are more flexible to trying different, you know, different strategies, working with the handler, um, instead of just giving up or persisting on the wrong solution. Yeah. So we, I'm just, I'll share with you what I've seen data wise for myself doing the exact same test. So obviously we know when Brian would, was developing a lot of these tests, it was done for canine companions for independence. So they actually scored really high for dogs that looked for that engagement from the handler. So they would try and then stop and then, you know, start counting the stopwatch in that minute for how long they pay attention to the handler. So what I did was I would count for how long a dog stayed active at trying to solve the problem. What I saw was dogs that would kind of breach that, I'm, I'm, I'll, get, I'll get super specific here, 42 seconds or so. If they stayed persistent for 42 seconds and then in that minute, the remaining, you know, 18 seconds or so, they look to handler. I have found that those, that's kind of like my sweet spot, if I would call it, were the ones that were really, really good at detection but would work mostly independently and not use us for information too much, but, you know, could problem solve on their own. 
versus the ones that look to us right away. The ones I had that would look right away or spend hardly any time trying to solve it or get it out were ones I found that were highly handler dependent, which is what I didn't want to have. And then the ones that were the whole minute going after it, or I had a few dogs solve it just by crushing it and breaking it with either jumping on it or biting it or whatever. Uh, I, my first time I did this, I brought it back to the Navy SEAL program, and within, I think, eight seconds, I had every dog break every container I, <laughs> I presented. I told Brian, I said, not so unsolvable. So, um, and, and with those, obviously, we were dealing with the extreme levels of motivation, but I, obviously, as I did more of this, uh, I was able to see that in the detection realm, that was that if we breached 40 seconds or more, it was a pretty solid dog. If it went, you know, the whole minute, I knew I might have a dog who's not obviously going to be super flexible. If I had two less, if I had a dog who wanted to lean on the handler for 30 seconds or more, I had a dog that had a lot of their inference or problem solving would just default to handler before trying to use anything else to solve it. So... Yeah, and yeah, obviously, just like you said, it's a sweet spot where you need you need a, a balance. And we actually we did a comparison of detection dogs to pet dogs on the unsolvable task. And even though we found that looking at the handler and detection dogs was it was important and it was predictive of a dog's ability to be trainable and have engagement, it was still overall in the population. It was still pretty low. They didn't look at the handler for the majority of the time. Mm-hmm. But in comparison to pet dogs. Pet dogs barely persisted and spent most of the time looking at the handler. So obviously, yep. there's the other side of the spectrum. And I see that a lot with the dogs that do detection sports because they are very. They're most of them are pets. They live in their house. They they grew up their whole life as a puppy with their handler or their owner. And now that the person is doing, you know, whether it be nose work or AKC scent work or whatever, um, and the other unique aspect I have to throw into it is. A lot of these people do multiple sports, so it might be agility and volleyball and so on and so forth, where there's a lot of human interaction, and all of a sudden now they want to do the detection dog sports, and it creates this conflict for the dog who's been like, well, I use you to help me figure the things out all the time, and now you don't want me to use you? you know. So I, I, I use the, the cognitive test to show them where their dog kind of is on that scale and what they can do to kind of maybe help, you know, address that conflict of, yeah, you can't use me. I'm, I'm of no help to you. <laughs> and as they do this and how to do what I call, like I said, the search puzzles to help the dog get better and better at doing this, which leads to this question is, so when you saw puppies that were strong in, um, let's say memory, were you able to, by doing cognitive, you know, inference testing or inference games, uh, help increase later on that dog, inference score its ability to problem solve increased because you made changes early on in that younger stage where they got to learn that it was more than just memory that you could create things to help them become problem solvers yeah so our our kind of program is sort of structured so that all of our dogs we don't have to do a whole lot of individualized different training obviously because we have a lot of dogs at once and it's difficult to make too many changes and, and all our dogs usually are pretty uniform um whereas our our training protocol is sort of standard mm-hmm. it would be different if we were talking about selecting a dog for a particular task then we would probably use some of those um those measures for the the memory task i will say the puppies at three months were generally not very good at it mm-hmm. um but we did have a couple individuals 
I remember, for example, I had a puppy named Cam who at three months, he just rocked it. At that point, we thought that three, at three months, it was, that was too early and puppies just didn't have the cognitive capacity. But that, that one puppy just nailed it every single time, no matter how long the delay was. And he ended up being, you know, a rock star dog. Um, but yeah, I don't know if you have any input on how. Well, I mean, outside the cognitive test, um, we see it a lot where, you know, even within a litter, some of the dogs tend to pick up on environmental cues and say, say you've got 16 puppies on a truck that you're trying to run through a problem. Mm -hmm. um, you've got to structure things to your scenario needs to address. Maybe all 16 of those dogs are broken down to I'm only running eight on this problem, but I'm going to have, say, so many scenarios in that problem that, that address all the dog's issues. And you'll always have a couple of dogs that the memory gets the best of them. And what we'll do is just we'll, we'll, we'll have scenarios that are a little bit harder. What, what's his issue? Is, he, is it visual memory? Hey, this looks like a productive area. Or is he, tr or is, he tra is he tracking other dogs? And this dog spent more time here, so then I'll turn my nose on in that area. Or is it that he said, hey, the dog's nose touched here, the dog licked here. Um, I want to pay attention here and start my nose. We'll, we'll just take all those variables away from that individual mm -hmm. dog. And, 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 you know, he may get his own problem to himself. For a very long time so he realizes that the rules that he's playing by are not working for him no correct and that's you you hit it and i'm gonna add this back into it the context part um it's so important especially in detection uh to change that context pretty regularly because you know with with many of these individuals not knowing what their dog is and like we just talked about a little while ago i feel it's so i feel it's so important for individuals to to do the cognitive testing on a dog because it gives you a, a, a user's manual to your dog. So you'll know as a trainer and handler, okay, my dog leans heavily on memory. I need to make some changes. I need to do things that take away that ability of memory. Or I have a really good problem solver. Okay, great. I can create some challenging situations here and ex and uh, help my dog become even better. Or take away, like you just said, the ones that are super smart like that, take away those things they keep trying to use and then get them back to using their nose first. So it's super important for you know people that do detection i you know we've all heard the saying all the time trust your dog trust your dog i always say know your dog if you know your dog you'll be able to trust your dog so knowing your dog you know because it makes you we go back to that efficiency part of training you're far better and you're more efficient as a trainer because you're not wasting so much time you know kind of scratch your head, why is this happening? Why is that happening? Because you just don't know what the, why the dog is doing this or that. By, by knowing the cognitive ability of the dog or way, which way it kind of leans, memory or inference, you're better able to prepare your training and your training problems to be more efficient and successful for the dogs. So Yeah, applying you know the cognition to the puppy development, something that we have been trying to do and that we've been able to do is once we've identified what the important cognitive abilities are, now how can we sort of adjust our early puppy development to enhance those abilities in all the dogs? So for example, like I said, introducing those obstacles early on to teach them how to problem solve and how to manage arousal. Yeah. And here's another one. This is a great topic because both of you guys can you know weigh in on this one. So I've had to make adjustments myself as I got better in learning cognition was I had to realize less reps is more, you know, and that was a hard thing to do. And it wasn't until Brian kind of played a game with me and we had a conversation about it. But, you know, the short version basically is, you know, introduce something to me 
only a few times, but that's all I saw. It was like once or twice. And then when referencing it, I was able to do it very quickly. When I had that same thing introduced to me and then other non-specific things or non-target things introduced to me, when questioned, I couldn't remember it as clearly. So the equation to that was like, you know, repetitions in dog training. Yeah, you may have a, uh, you know, you get rep one pretty good, rep two pretty good, then rep three kind of falls off, rep four, because now you don't want to stop there. Four is not so good, but all of a sudden at rep five, it's better. You do rep six, it's good, and you go, oh, I ended on a good note. And like he said, yeah, but in that memory, which part is that dog really pulling from? Where if, if you ended on that first one that was good, then came back a little bit later and did it again, the dog, its memory that it's pulling from is even better than all those reps that you did have you guys and how do you guys do that and have you guys seen that yeah that that plays into a lot of you know consolidation of memory and there's been a lot of research showing that you know you can you can have two different groups of dogs that spend the same total amount of time training but the group that did it in shorter brief sessions and broke it apart over a longer period of time ended up retaining more than the dog that did sort of more kind of mass condensed training yeah and i I see it from you know the hands-on training side of it is you know it even goes into what you're talking about the context that you you see everybody i've got i'm teaching my dog a new odor right or their Mm -hmm. first odor and i'm going to criterion them on odor so i won't i'm going to get up to 20 trials so you got one two three you know a test and all of a sudden the dog starts responding on its own Mm -hmm. well they're going to get 20 unassisted trials so they can say the dog's criterion well i say put the dog back on the truck. Once the dog does exactly what you want, put the dog back on the mm-hmm. truck. You say just one more, you're, you're in trouble. Yeah. And I put emphasis, my criteria of odor is not just on imprint boxes. It is, I may get five on imprint boxes. I may get five on an eight placement on a scent wall. Amen. I may get five on an eight placement on vehicles. I may get five on an open area field search. And then I may get a building search. And then if, They've not assisted. They don't have any mistakes. Then their criteria. But staying in in one context and doing twenty trials is is never gonna never gonna train a dog or be good for the dog. No, they just they just go to the, to the, that visual spatial memory versus anything they're really learning. And like you just brought up, I I always want odor to be the most important thing. And as we all know, odor pays. So I want them to understand odor pays in this context. It pays in that context. And so then that way, they're all they want to do is default to nose, find the odor, do the behavior indication I want, and then get paid. You know, or initially I go, I, we talked about odor pays, and then I teach odor, and then I want you to do this, and then you get paid. But the uh, it, it's it's really fun to. It was an adjustment for me, and I, you know I've been doing this a long time now, and all of a sudden I was like, wait, what? Just do one or two reps, and I tell you what, the dividends that it paid, doing one rep, two reps. And stopping, and, and even as Brian brought up to it, was now make it a big game. You know, the dog did what it did. Now go play for a few minutes and then put it up. And that what he, and the point he's making there was that brain chemistry that occurs from that event after from that memory really did some extra things there, you know, and without getting too crazy into the, uh, the chemistry aspect uh, of it all, the dog's uh, brain and dopamine and things like that. Uh, it was, you know, uh, it had a, a, a lot of value. And uh, that was an adjustment, you know. We, we, we were, And the crazy part is I've now seen it in special operations, how we are training special operations individuals or even uh, those that are really progressive in the law enforcement world. They're doing 
let's say, firearms training or doing other tactic stuff, and they're using the same principle. They're using a bridge. They'll do a signal that, that they, the operator knows they did something correctly, and then they get to go stop and rest for a little while. And then by doing that, and they come back. Their memory is actually better of that of that uh, sequence or that behavior or that uh, muscle movement or what have you. Uh, so it's it's it works on us. It works on animals. But the old mentality was do it three thousand reps and then you'll be good at it. Well, and something else too, I think that people don't realize is that, like you're saying, the emotional state of the dog is really important to how it's going to learn. And you see a lot of, I'll say, old school people who use kind of more heavy handed. You're trying to imprint a dog on odor, dog sniffs the odor, and then you're going to, you know, jerk it up with a choke chain. Yep. Some, you know, some dogs can handle that. That's just, that's fine. But some dogs are going to interpret that as a negative experience and they're going to associate that environment, that contact, that odor with that aversive experience. And you are just kind of working against yourself at that point. Yep, absolutely. So since we're numbers people, uh, what would you guys say um, is a percentage and i'll say on average uh of dogs that that are successful that you've selected from and doing the things that we talked about so going from you know using cognitive measures to uh, you know evaluate doing the environmental stimulation and exposure and then the various search and exposure and training games what has been the percentage of dogs that go from start to finish uh and out to the field for you guys like i said as an average what are you guys seeing as, as your percentage so in our program specifically, um, our we average about 80% of our dogs make it in the field as some kind of detection dog. Um, the majority of those, you know, end up being vaporwave dogs, whereas the rest can go to different kinds of detection roles. Um, but yeah, we average about 80%. And then of the dogs that wash out, like I said, the majority of the reason that they wash out is for env environmental soundness. Very few dogs that lack the performance characteristics yeah and when we our washout dogs um what we consider our washout dogs still go on to be um research dogs the dogs that do uh you know lab type settings they're environmentally unsound but if they come to the same place and work every day they're phenomenal workers and there's something to be said for that something tied to that high performance that high sensitivity to work um is also sensitive to environmental stimulus um, we see that all the time if the dog was environmentally sound this would be the best dog i've ever worked in my life and I don't know if you, you see that as well, but we see it through through our breeding program. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you guys also hit on the important thing. So the, I throw this out now that I've done this a few times with uh, the various breeding programs that are out there in the States. So the typical arguments that always come up is, oh, my gosh, it'd be so expensive to do this. Oh, my gosh, what do I do with all these washouts that I'll have? We're just going to inundate the world with even more dogs that end up in rescue and shelters because – if a dog doesn't make a detection dog or make a dual purpose dog, all the rest are worthless, you know, and you hit the nail on the head by saying, no, yeah, it may not be a dog I put in the field as a bomb or drug dog, but guess what? It's actually going to be a great dog for a medical facility training. Oh, it's going to be a great dog uh, working maybe a correctional facility, or maybe it's a great dog for those that do sport, um, a therapy dog. So it isn't that you know, and they're going to go, well, I don't make as much money on that. Not necessarily true. There's a lot of resources there. Uh, like you said, you know, uh, whether it be medical research or a prison or what have you, there's the dogs, you know, at 80%, you know, eight out of 10 pups. And this is just, again, we're talking averages here, but if you are a good breeder and you're, and you're following these steps and you get your numbers there, 
even the two that don't make it, even if they became a pet, you have you've been a productive breeder, and if you are in a doing business, it also makes your your cost of dogs go down because if a significant number are doing well, which means you're not have to charge as much because you're working with all the dogs all at the same time. So it's not like you have to charge, you know, I'm just throwing out a number out here, but $25,000 per pup, you know, to become a, a, you know, when you sell it by time, it's, it's to cost that much. Um, because, you know, if we do exactly what we're talking about here, following steps and the things that you guys have learned through research and, and experience, you can get good dogs and the numbers are going to be there and it's going to be, in some cases, the same or maybe even cheaper than what it costs these days to go to Europe, look at dogs, select dogs, ship them back, put them, vet them, and then get them out to the customer. Well, that that plays into this domestic shortage and and the real cost of a dog um, from overseas that that it's not talked about. Yeah, you may you you know you may have went and you you got more experience with this than I do. You may have spent five thousand dollars for a dog in Europe, but what it costs to get you back. Uh, get the dog back, and then what is the attrition rate once they get back? Yep. Um, and to get them back over there. So if you report the real cost, mm-hmm. is that that's a whole different number, and that's and that's one of the problems is we're going to fix this domestic shortage in this country. Is we need to know that real cost, and then we need to pay the the, the people that have the genetics and the breeders here mm-hmm. in this country that number, and the problem will be solved overnight. Um, it, the, these genetics exist, and I consult for some people in the gun dog world, um, and the quality exists. The problem is they say, hey, Bart, um, I'm getting more than that, what they'll pay for a what a supposed whatever a green dog means, a foundationally yeah. prepared dog. I'm getting more than that for someone to go duck hunting with a dog yeah. or go hunting, and that's sad. Oh, yeah. No, you're, you're, very, you're very right. I was with uh, uh, some friends of mine, and, and they're up in the uh, Pacific Northwest area. And uh, they do uh, German short hair pointers. And, uh, you know, without really a helping guidance, you know, they, they had a good litter. The dogs just didn't develop as, as good for detection. But we literally walked outside. She put some birds out, and they were fantastic. And she goes, I, oh, I can get five grand all day long just for this. Well, that, that's, kind of the model that we, that's kind of the model that we've got set up. And that's kind of how I see it going is – you know, the, these genetics that were for upland hunting specifically or, you know, you know, gun dogs in general yeah. in the floppy dog, floppy eared world, um, they can recover their cost. Oh, yeah. If they, if they if they follow the steps and the steps that we've we've talked about today are being done now. It was funny. Guy had English pointers um, that I'm consulting for. And now I, I, he got a litter of labs is doing it. And he said, hey, I'm doing this development with my English pointers mm-hmm. from here on out. It's yep. not it's only going to make a better gun dog. But at the same time, if we can go in steps in the education, how to identify these behaviors, these cognitive tests, these evaluation processes, and the proper development, they can identify these dogs earlier and still recover the money that's invested and turn a profit on at an early age. Oh, for sure. And, and make a, gun, a, a high-quality gun dog and only push the ones that are the higher-quality detection work. Yeah. No. That's, a pro- that's a problem with the system because the system generally says breeder, developer for gun dog a single purpose protection dog is now they, they putting all these high quality dogs out. The only ones that we have seen in this country for the most part is because of the vendor system. You're going to have a middleman come in at a year old yeah. buy the dog and he's only buying your field trial washout or your underperformer or that highly over aroused, less flexible dog. 
And that's what's making the detection dog system. We're not seeing the highest quality dogs in this country because they're hunting. Yeah. No, and I remember even the Europeans I've I've spoken to, uh, you know, I've, I've been getting, and I'm sure you guys see it too, more and more pointers coming through, and they're already applying what you just talked about. They're like, yes, our genetics are coming from the hunting aspect. We are now also looking and developing this more stronger detection aspects, and they're getting more litters that have actually more detection dogs, but he's easily got the place for the dogs that aren't detector dogs to go to because – they're, they're still pulling from the same stock. They're just now kind of splitting hairs, to lack of a better term, taking this group and going, okay, you're better detectors. We're going to go that way with you and make our money on that. And these other ones will still make money because we're going to put them in the hunting world. Because, again, the genetic stock is sound. You know, They just now know better what to look for. And the industry, because of the, uh, you know, how long we've been you know, pulling from labs for so long that now we're starting to see other breeds – um, I mean, and, and, and it's funny, I've been, I've, I've got a, my labs, my, uh, my gun, my firearms detection dog is a fantastic dog, but I tell you what, over the past, probably, uh, year and a half, two years, I've got to, the joy of working with some fantastic pointers and I just kind of keep seeing them crop up more and more. And what I love about it, the lazy trainer in me goes, Nice. The indication's already built in <laughs> when I'm working with a lot of the pointers. <laughs> it, it makes it – it's a no-brainer for a new handler to have a dog who stops like a statue and points to, we got odor here, and uh, it, it works really well for them. Um, but and they, and they airborne scent, fantastic. So I'll, I'll say something to that, too, is in, you know, the trainability of, of the pointer, in my experience, German short hair pointers, you know, they have all the natural traits. Little, little harder to deal with, little less flexible, mm-hmm. in my opinion, mm-hmm. um, than the lab. But there are Labrador retrievers um, that are bred specifically for upland work. So they they do the utility of the pointer, um, of the spaniel, and of the retriever. So they point, they flush, and they retrieve. Okay. And if, if you get your hands on some of those genetics and look at those, that's pretty much a detection dog. When you talk about air sending, the prey drive. Um, being able to use a more nosy dog and a less social interaction, that fine balance there, those genetics exist. But oh, you've yeah. got to get to the, you got to get, got to get away from more of the competition dog um, and into the real, what I call a meat dog, the real hunting dogs of the world, and in, in, in pockets that where they still exist in the states. Yeah, no, for sure. So now, let me ask this: Would would you guys ever, or would Auburn ever do any other breeds? other than labs or have you guys done breeds other than labs or is it kind of just what that that wheelhouse okay go ahead we crossed we crossed in a uh, a draught iron um oh yes that's what my so my pup my my pointer i'm talking about right now it's a cross between a uh, a german short hair pointer and a trathar ah okay so uh we crossed in one of those he was an amazing dog phenomenal dog and um and i knew him well he lived with me um the problem is is the first cross went well, mm-hmm. you know, got that hybrid bigger. Um, but when we held back from it and recrossed it, we lost everything every, oh, wow. every, every time. And, and, you know, there's, there's some indication of that, the heterosis um, thought process, your first cross, you'll get the hybrid bigger, everything you wanted, you'll maximize on it. And then after that, it, it falls off pretty quick. Um, and so we, we have stepped away from that. We got the best, our first cross, we got the best litter we ever had. Mm-hmm. And then everything out, uh, the next cross was 50%. And then 
we had litters where we, uh, Lucia, you know, it was, you know, some of our worst breedings we've ever done. Yep. So we kind of, we kind of got back to the basics after okay. that. Now, would you guys go with any, you know, without crosses, would you guys uh, end up or look at uh, just like, let's just say Springer, you know, GSP, you guys ever go into those, you think maybe in the future or? Well, personally, I'll, if, if the problem is um, the task um, mm-hmm. I, with with the Springers, I love I love Springers. I've trained um, wildlife conservation dogs, poached dish fillet dogs um, in the Gulf, and I had the English Cockers and Springers. And the eco dogs that were um, that I've worked with, and uh, uh, the spaniels, I love them. Um, the problem is, is covering ground, stamina, and size sometimes. Yeah, you, yeah. You hear a lot of people talk about how they work, and I just don't think that they understand the spaniel. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they did, they wouldn't have much problem with it. They just they're not used to something looking a little bit different when a dog works over. Sure. And uh, but no, I love I love spaniels, and uh, we I don't know that we would if if we had projects that required that size stature type dog yeah um then yes we would yeah no it's and i i've had fun you know doing working with the different breeds as well so it's it's always a uh uh you know all of us come from you know we like challenges obviously and uh it's always fun when i get thrown into a different breed because uh what i i made the correlation on another podcast was what i i was around when everything switched from German Shepherd, everything had to be a German Shepherd only, to then the Malinois coming in and the resistance to it, then the ones that loved it, to then all of a sudden the Malinois had uh, higher numbers than your typical German Shepherds when you looked at police dogs and military working dogs, to now what we see, you know, the Malinois struggle with a little bit of the same issues that the Shepherds went through due to the overbreeding and, you know, lack of control of genetics and things like that. Um, yeah, I've wa- I'm watching now with the uh, rise of the popularity in the pointers and seeing that increase and seeing the pluses, but then I'm laughing because the individuals that like the pointers struggle because they, they don't, you know, you can't handle them like a lab. They are different and you have to, you know, a lot of times the more you're out of their way, the better they're going to do. If you try to work them and, and do a lot of detail work, most pointers are like, screw this. I am not hunting. You're just in my way all the time. I don't want to work anymore. So the uh, so it's fun to see, you know, like I said, the, the personal side of me is enjoying seeing a, a another breed kind of rise. Um, but then with that comes we have to educate ourselves on how to best work with it. So this leads to my – I'll kind of end on this question here. Um, as we've talked about this system or a process here – from puppy to professional dog, uh, what are some main bullet points you want to leave the audience with to think about uh, when it comes to uh, this process? What you know, we talked we talked about environmental, we talked about cognition. Kind of give people like a, a little bit of a kind of some bullet points. Says you know, if you want to do this, think about these things as you do this process. So I would say that the what makes this kind of challenging is that. You have to have the right combination of genetics and environment. And nobody really knows what that combination exactly is or how exactly to determine how much is genetics and how much is environmental in a particular dog. But if you start with the right foundational genetics and then on top of that, you have the proper you know, development and environmental conditioning and exposure, then you should, you know, it shouldn't be a difficult task. It's basically everything, all the pieces are there for you. 
if you don't have the genetic foundation, you can, you know, a good trainer can train a dog to perform any behavior. But at the end of the day, if it's not a natural behavior, if it's not innately in the dog, it's gonna, it's not gonna have endurance. It's gonna fall apart. But you may be able to get there. Um, whereas you can have strong genetics, but if you don't apply the proper um, development and conditioning and environment, those genetics are only going to get you so far. So it's really about identifying what the characteristics are that are important and how to identify whether the dog carries those genetics and then how to apply the proper developmental protocols to enhance and facilitate the expression of those genetics. And, and I'd like to add to that, that, that I see a lot of people selecting dogs playing into their own system and, and relying more on their development versus the genetics. And like Lucia just said, you know, they're equal. Um, and what they end up doing is training harder, creating, more, having to use more resource, time and money to produce the same quality dog. But all they see is the end goal that they, they had a success. Um, but they should be selecting dogs that require less resources, time, money, and training to get to the same point. And you're, you're, people want to see one dog. They look at one dog, evaluate one dog. Oh, it's a great dog. I want to breed that dog. I'm not breeding that dog until typically if I have the option, um, I'm looking at relatives. I'm looking at litter mates, half litter mates, sire and dam if they're available. And then say, okay, all of his relatives or her relatives are somewhat of the same caliber of consistency and he's the standout or she's the standout. Now I'm, that's my breeding quality individual. Yeah, no, those, and that, that those are excellent points. And, and um, like we've talked about, you know, we do have genetics here um, in the United States and, and we're identifying a process and then educating uh, people. And we have, like I said, great people such as yourselves on there. And, you know, as we, as we've done a lot of talking here, um, you know, a lot of people want to learn how to do this. So uh, I know we, we've spoken, I'm going to share with the audience now, we will be doing a webinar series together and we'll get that information out uh, over the next, you know, probably a couple months. Um, and with that said, how do people, because I know you guys all, all, can also go and I know Bart, you actually teach uh, people and do seminars and classes. Um, what are ways that people can get a hold of you? And you can, do, you can also... Uh, if there's an easy way, great, but you can, uh, offline, I can get the, your guys' contact info, emails, and if there's a website, let me know the website now, but I will put that in the show notes. So for those that are listening, um, just give us like a way to that, what you guys have, what you guys do. And then of course, like I said, we'll be doing the webinars as well. Yeah. So my email is lucia.lazarowski at auburn.edu. I'll let you post that because I'm yep. sure that's difficult. <laughs> um, and I have a I have a website. I honestly don't know the URL, but if you Google my name and Wix W I X, it should pull it up. And I try to um, keep that updated, sharing the recent research that we're doing at Auburn, posting articles and updates, things like that. And my email is ber 3 at edu. Perfect. And and, and uh, also at this by the time this airs. Uh, the new Ford K9 website will be up, and Lucia, I'll be glad to post uh, a lot. You know, share your research and the research that you post 
within the within the customer uh, portal or the client portal on that website, so that people can actually not only hear this stuff, watch webinars, but then I'll have the resource location for uh, those that are avid readers can go in and read the uh, PDF files from uh, individuals like you and Dr. Hall and Michelle. Uh, and, uh, uh, and again, for those that want to have BART come out to your area uh, or to work with you if you're a breeder to help you uh, continue to br uh, bring out dogs that will become good detection dogs, uh, shoot everybody an email or shoot Bart an email uh, to get that going. And again, I'm going to do everything I can to uh, help that. And then when we do a webinar together, of course, all this stuff will be in your guys' PowerPoint and things like that. So I can't thank you guys enough for taking the time. I know we, we tried to do this a few weeks ago, and, you know, of course, the whole hell broke loose now. But uh, uh, I, I thank you guys for your time for coming on and doing this. And I can't wait to do more. And uh, if you guys are open to it, I'd love to have you guys back on at another later date and we'll do another podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having us. We're we're avid listeners of the podcast. So it's fun to get a chance to be on this side of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. And, you know, I always do my best to try to, you know, bridge that gap between academic and science world and those of us that have been, you know, on the professional side or even on the sports side of the dog world uh, to collaborate, you know, uh, the you know, there's a lot of things in the detection dog world that are changing so rapidly now, and science and research is a major factor in what we do professionally, especially as narcotics dog handlers, things of like like odor recognition testing that are now starting to become more standard and, and more important considering dogs are being deemed sensors on a forensic level. Um, so... It's work from you guys that I can't say I'm thankful enough for doing what you're doing. Please keep it up. Uh, I will always happily share everything that you guys will let me share. So, again, thank you for all of that. Thank you. Thank you. Well, listeners, thank you again for tuning in to Canines Talking Sense, where it's okay to be nosy. I hope everybody enjoyed that episode with Dr. Lazarowski. And if you did, we have good news. Just like we spoke about, we are going to be having our first webinar together on June 4th. That'll be at 9 p.m. Eastern Time or 6 p.m. Pacific Time. If you want to enjoy that webinar live, go to my website, FordK9.com forward slash webinars and you can click on the upcoming events and sign up for her uh, webinar and by being on that webinar live uh, you can ask questions and partake in that that webinar will be part one of the series that's kind of that we're going to call preparing the young dogs for detection task part one is going to be the behavioral evaluation and selection so they're going to talk about uh, the different things that they do or they've been doing at Auburn University that have been successful in evaluating and selecting from puppies to young adults uh, dogs for detection. So that's going to be a great webinar. Also, not only will this webinar, but all of my past webinars are also on FordK9.com forward slash webinars. Uh, you can enjoy any one of those webinars that are online. You can stream them to your computer. 
uh, or any device. And the uh, option also exists to join the Ford Canine Club channel, which is $25 a month, and you get two webinars. Uh, I've been typically running an average of two to three webinars a month right now, and each webinar's price is uh, about $25. The, so if you do the Ford Canine Club channel, you get two webinars, one of the most current from that month and one from the past. So you constantly get two webinars. You get to uh, get those for $25. But like I said, if you don't want to do the membership, you are free to go to the website and download or stream any of the past webinars we've done. All of them are on there. Every webinar I do gets posted on the website uh, within 24 hours after it ends. So this webinar with Dr. Lazarowski will be posted on the website uh, 24 hours later. But like I said, there is a benefit from listening to or partaking in the webinars live because you can actually interact with the guest instructor. Also, if you're looking for continuing education credits by attending the webinars live, you can also get a certificate for attendance for the two-hour webinar for that topic, and that'll be signed by the uh, uh, guest speaker and myself. Um, if you want the continuing education credits for the past webinars, you have to, of course, purchase those webinars and then email me afterwards. I can verify the purchase and then get you guys a certificate. So again, uh, continuing education is important. We have numerous webinars already on FordK9.com. Uh, this one's coming up. So stay tuned. Watch my social media. Everything is at, at Cameron Ford K9. And you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. Again, at symbol Cameron Ford K9. And you will find me on Facebook. We also now have our Ford K9 uh, business page on Facebook. And that's just simply facebook.com forward slash Ford K9. Any questions, of course, as usual, email me at info, I-N-F-O, at Ford, F-O-R-D, K-number-9.com. And this concludes this episode of K-9's Talking Sense, where it's okay to be nosy. Okay.